And I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Never fear change. Life is too short for fear. Chase what is desired. I can do this all day. Would you mind identifying what you are? We're the best friend squad. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Welcome to the rodeo. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. This is the way. I have spoken. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. In today's episode, we're playing a little bit of catch-up. Apologies to Malko Older and RJ Barker, because we are way out of date on this one. However, these are still two excellent interviews with two excellent authors. In the first half, you'll hear Sean Duke interview Malka Older about the Serial Box Publishing presentation of Orphan Black. In the second half of the episode, Paul Weimer interviews R.J. Barker about his novel, The Bone Ships. Again, apologies to both authors. In this case, hopefully, better late than never. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny Show. I'm Sean, and today on Signaboost we have Malka Older to talk about Orphan Black, the next chapter. Welcome to the show, Malka. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So why don't we get you to tell us a little bit about this really exciting project from Serial Box, Orphan Black, the next chapter. So it is super exciting. And when they came to me with the idea, I was just so thrilled because I love the Orphan Black TV show. It is just so everything. You know, it's funny, it's creepy, it's edgy, it's feminist, it's, you know, a little bit cyberpunk, a little bit biopunk. Um, It's got this amazing conceit that is just incredibly rendered by the actress, as well as the writers and the special effects and just everything they did with it was so amazing. And, you know, I was addicted while it was running. Um, And I was really sad when it ended, although also they did a great wrap up and ending, which is always nice with a show you love. Um, So when they came and said, you know, we're doing a follow up. And in particular, they told me, you know, it's set eight years after the ending, which I found really nice, because that way, you're not sort of just crashing in on that lovely wrap up that they did, but you can still continue with the same characters. Uh, And I was just super excited to work on it. And so, you know, I I submitted a pitch for what the concept of the season might look like. And we got some amazing, amazing writers together. And now, I mean, so far, the reaction from fans has just been incredible. So I was, I, was, I had a silly question and I was literally going to ask, <laughs> I, I take it you're a fan. And then I realized like, ah, you, you beat me to it. Uh, because I, I imagine for something like this, you had to be a little bit of, of a fan because it's not the sort of traditional route for how we might get to media and tie-in work because Serial Box is like a very different modern interpretation of the sort of the, the classic serial, except now it's on the internet. And so you can buy seasons uh, and it's really cool. So I, I, I guess the question I kind of wanted to bridge into instead was kind of thinking about the, the idea of writing a serial format and what kind of drew you to both writing orphan black beyond the fact that you're obviously you're a super fan <laughs> and, but more particularly like the, the format itself, like what is so compelling for you about writing a serial based season like format? So I had written some serials for serial box before this, um, which is part of why they you know came to me with it. I worked for them on born to the blade, which was uh, Mike Underwood's creation. That's a sword and sorcery fantasy on floating islands it's very cool also very good yeah you can you can still get that on serial box and then i also created and lead write ninth step station which is a near future cyberpunk geopolitically divided tokyo buddy cop murder mystery procedural boom and that one's great we're writing the second season now with fran wilde and curtis chen and jay koyanagi um so so i had done this with them a couple of times before uh, and what's fun about it is, you know, it's it's kind of it's a very different rhythm from writing either a novel or a short story because you're kind of combining it. But honestly, the really fun part is writing with these groups of other writers who are excited about this idea 
And, you know, you usually start with a writer's room weekend where you're all together in one room and you just kind of bounce ideas off each other and try to one up each other and, you know, figure out some great meta plots that are twisty and interesting. And then you go off and you can write your episodes by yourself, come back and you bounce them off everyone else again. Um, so you're writing these sort of short chunks and you have this collaborative feeling to it all. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, and it really makes sense, you know, when we look at something like Orphan Black, which is already, you know, the mindset for anyone who's watched the show is already this sort of serialized building of a story, right? So you have these episodes that are more or less standalone. You know, each of them is something happens and and it gets followed through, it gets resolved or it gets built upon. And then, you know, each of these episodes is building up to a larger mystery and a larger climax for the whole series, for the whole season. Um, so, you know, as, especially when you're already thinking in that mode from a television show, it's it just makes a lot of sense. And it's and it's a lot of fun to write that way. So I, I don't know if we have mentioned your co-writers on this, uh, but you I mean, I could say it, but it, it sounds way more cool coming from you, all the lovely folks you're working with here. Yeah, um, so it's a fantastic crew um, who's working on it. Uh, besides myself, we have uh, Madeline Ashby, Michelle Baker. You know, sometimes I try to do it in alphabetical order, but it's just it's just kind of brutal. Um, E.C. <laughs> <laughs> e. Myers, Helly Kennedy, and Lindsay Smith. So all people who have great credentials in terms of the kind of sci-fi and fantasy they've written before. Um, Helly Kennedy might be the name that's unfamiliar to, to people in that kind of SFF world, but she worked on the original series. So that gave us that kind of link and legacy. She also writes, um, for games. So she's, she's got, um, other cred beyond that, but you know, everyone else I think should be familiar to people in this world because they've written amazing stuff. Um, and quite a lot of them have written other things for Serial Box as well. And, and probably worth mentioning, this is narrated by none other than Tatiana Meslani. Yeah, which is the most amazing thing because, I mean, I I am not someone to really geek out about actors so much. I tend to geek out about writers more, but she's amazing. Like the work that she does in the original series in terms of creating the different clones um, so that, you know, I mean, you really forget watching it, that they're all done by the same person. And to have her come in and do that on the audio and even start embodying the other characters who are not clones, who have other voices um, is just incredible. And her work has been amazing. So, you know, it really links it to the original series. And of course, you know, she also was not tied in from the beginning. We didn't know she'd be doing this until uh, just a couple of months before it was released really. And so, you know, she, her agreeing to do it after reading the scripts was was also a huge thing because it means that to her as well it really feels like a continuation well yeah i mean, imagine that would have been like a huge the moment you learned that there must have been like pop the champagne <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was pretty amazing and you know as i said it's 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 less about the star really than knowing that this is someone who really cared about the show who invested a huge amount into it i mean huge because look at the amount of acting that she did in every episode and whose other stuff's going on. You know, she's quite busy. She has her career going on now in, in really cool and interesting ways. But, you know, thought that the writing that we had done in the new story we came up with was worth coming back to this and was something that that really dealt um, respectfully and with the legacy of the show and also took it to a new place. So, you know, that was really important, I think, for all of us on the writing team. Well, so speaking of writing team, I'm really curious because you have quite a number of folks sort of writing here and you had mentioned you kind of get a, a get together to kind of hash out ideas. Uh, but obviously you all don't like live next door to each other. Uh, and so you go off into your, your secret writing holes and, and you do your writing and obviously communicate email and all of that stuff. But, but yes. although now I'm imagining us all living next to each other, but still having secret writing holes, which would be kind of fun. It'd be like Hobbit holes kind of, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like dark, deep little ones. And I, I don't know. Deeper, yeah. <laughs> sort of deeper, more secured Hobbit holes. Yeah, exactly. Well, so one of the things I was curious about was the process you all kind of go for, especially since you had mentioned earlier that these are sort of, uh, kind of like standalone episodes that have connections. So they're not like 
the more traditional serial narrative where like every episode's deep embedded into each other episode. There's a little bit more of that kind of mini anthology format, but with those, the connecting tissue, at least if I understood you correctly. Well, it's, I mean, it is quite connected because, um, the, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's a lot like the series. So we do have some cliffhangers from episode to episode. Um, but we also do want them to stand alone week to week because these do come out every week. So we want to make sure, you know, there's a good chunk of story to satisfy people. Uh, and then it keeps you going into the next one. Oh, okay. Oh, so I think maybe I, I moved just a little bit too far into maybe anthology territory, but there's still a little bit of that standaloneness that, um, I guess the question I had was really about the, the kind of process you'll kind of go through as you're, you're all sort of writing the pieces that you're, you're doing. So what really is the process of having a bunch of writers from all over the place doing a thing like this? Yeah. So, um, it's, we started, as I said, with this on site where we're all together and we're talking through things, um, which was a really intense, you know, like three, four days, uh, just in there nine to five, going at it, trying to figure out what the arc would look like, um, making sure we all knew, you know, the, the nice thing about this is because we were all fans. We all knew the characters from the show, but there are some new characters as well. So we wanted to make sure we were all comfortable with them and could write them in roughly the same way. Um, and then we divided up the episodes. And what we do typically is we'll go through um, a process. We'll do like three or four at a time. Each person will write the outline for their episode. They'll share them around. We'll do a call to, to give feedback. We'll go back and write a draft, share them around, do a call to give feedback. In the meantime, between all this, we have a Slack where we just go nuts with new ideas and, uh, you know, ask questions about things we need to fill out. And so by doing it in that way, we, we have some idea of what the other people are writing and, and are able to connect. But, you know, I'll be honest, we also had to go back and revise quite a bit to make sure that everything lined up. Um, I mean, one of the things about Orphan Black is that the plots are so twisty, you know, and it's really about um, just flipping things around and bringing in new characters and, and startling you with the direction that things go. And we wanted to, again, you know, to, to get that feeling in it. So, I mean, that was challenging to pull off with so many people writing consecutive episodes basically at the same time. So we did have to do a lot of revision. We had to do a sort of a lot of continuity. Um, but yeah, we're, we're really happy with how it turned out. So very, a very kind of like really in-depth kind of work that you might not get in a traditional writing situation because of the amount of crossover you kind of have to talk with each other. But I guess the wonders of the internet that we live in a vaguely cyberpunky sort of time that you can do that now. Yes, yes, totally. And we're using all of the, you know, we're using conference calls, we're using Slack, we're, you know, then we have side channels and email and VR. <laughs> not yet although that's a pretty great idea i will talk to cereal box about that yeah see if they can get you some some oculus <laughs> that would be bizarre i don't know how that would work but maybe it would be great i don't know um <laughs> so uh, uh, one of the other things i uh, you know because given your own work you know you, you've written infomocracy infomocracy uh and and a couple of other works that are sort of have some, I guess, genre similarities in some ways to uh, writing for Orphan Black. Um, is that part of why you sort of like really connected with Orphan Black when you were sort of watching the show and also part of why you perhaps was were especially excited? Or, or do you kind of see your Orphan Black work as very distinct from your, your other work? I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely kind of up my alley in terms of the things that are interesting to me. It's, you know, it's very much about technology and society, which is something that is really fascinating to me that I try to address both in my fiction. And it's, you know, it's very close to sort of my other, um, I, I do academic work as well on the subject. And, you know, I, I also just love kind of the feel of how it's presented and the approach. So, uh, you know, I think, I think, the original show for me, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of a sweet spot. And then I tried, did try to bring some of that, uh, to what we did with the new story because, you know, basically I wanted it to, to feel like Orphan Black, but it still had to be distinct enough so that it didn't feel like a repeat, right? So we did a couple of different things. You know, one of, we, we added some new characters, both clone and non-clone. And one of the things that I wanted to do as well, which is, you know, kind of, if you've, if you've read my fiction and my novels, this will probably sound pretty much on brand. Um, but, you know, in the, 
in the show, a lot of the sort of evil entities were big corporations, which is something I'm very comfortable with. But we, had to, <laughs> we had to do something a little bit different as well. And particularly thinking about the way that surveillance and biometrics and facial recognition are going on these days, it became really interesting to us to think about governments as the ones that were the threat to the clones um, in this situation. So we kind of took that and ran with it. You just reminded me of even more things I need to like tell my students about. <laughs> we talked about Twitter bots uh, today and some of the influences on political discourse. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. Also, don't forget about all the surveillance that's going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, so I guess I kind of have a, a, a silly question because we are talking about a serial story based in a universe featuring clones. But at the moment, are you aware of any clones of you that might exist? <laughs> um, not aware at the moment. Are, are you worried that that might be something that's happening? At the moment? <laughs> not terribly worried. Um <laughs> Am I worried about cloning in general or specifically clones of me? Because, you know, if there are clones of me out there, I can think of some things I could have them do to, like, take a little of the work off my hands and we could sort of share it out. And then afterwards, like, you know, Netflix and chill. <laughs> um, but if you're talking about cloning in general, you know, I kind of have a in in general in terms of technology, I kind of think that they're not many technologies that I worry about per se, you know, that I worry about the technology itself. Um, what I worry about is the way that people and companies and governments use the technology. Mm. So to take an example that exists now, um, you know, genetically modified organisms, genetically modified crops. I, you know, I don't know enough about it to be able to, to really judge the specifics, but my understanding is that can be used to do really powerful things in terms of making sure we can feed lots of people and making crops. And, and also it's, it's kind of an extension of the sort of breeding that has gone on for centuries, which is how we get things like corn that are edible in ways that they weren't um, originally. But on the other hand, you look at the way that GMO is being used by certain corporations to shut out farmers um, where it's being used kind of recklessly to do things that, help sales, you know, that cosmetically make a food look good without actually doing stuff to protect our food supply or to be cautious about what other implications those changes might have. So, you know, I think cloning as a thing is not necessarily horrible, but it's very likely to be used in horrible ways um, and perpetrated on people in horrible ways without consent and without information and, um, you know, with these echoes of second class citizenship and that is is very dangerous and worrying but the cloning itself is not necessarily and if you want a scary book about cloning read Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, Never Let Me Go which is oh yeah a fantastic and terrifying book that I think does not get mentioned in SF circles enough because it's very much science fiction and yet I don't know he sort of gets this literary pass which I don't think he would agree with either uh, but it's, it's a fantastic book. I, yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with that exact work. And I, I, I read it after I saw the film version because the film version I found really disturbing, uh, mostly because it is, even though I don't think it would happen tomorrow, it was believable enough that I thought, but it is something we might, we might dabble in. Oh yeah, for sure. I haven't seen the movie, but the, the book is extraordinary. So. There, 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 I mean, it, it's a, it's a movie, so there's differences, but yeah. I will note that, uh, apparently in California now they're like selling young people blood and doing transfusions. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're not that far away yet, folks. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's a matter of, you know, who's in charge and who is making the decisions and who has the power and the money to, to, to decide on participation in these technologies and on how they're used. Yeah. Hopefully we, we figure it all out. And so we can use technology for benefit rather than the, the opposite and have just lots of Monsanto's running around ruining everybody's lives. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, 
and that, and also, and also, you know, make decisions about which technologies we don't want to pursue. Um, not just because, you know, again, I mean, I don't think some technologies are inherently bad, uh, although there are certainly technologies that are riskier than others, but also when we choose to pursue one technology, that's money and time and human resources going to that place and not going to a different technology that we might develop. So, you know, I hope that's something we can also become much more conscious about. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, well, I guess to bring it back to the writing a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. in a way, right, that science fiction can help us to have these conversations by making us think about these exact questions. Yes. Uh, And I know I'm not suggesting Orphan Black is asking all all of these these questions necessarily, or at least for all of the things that we just talked about. But in in some ways, I imagine your your version, the next chapter, does address some of these kinds of concerns in, in its own unique way. Yeah, we certainly try to. I mean, again, just just in terms of trying to be following the original series, it it does a lot with these questions of technology and ownership. And reproductive health is a really important one. As I said, with the new one, we're going into some some of the same areas and, and also trying to go into some different ones, you know, talking about things like surveillance and, uh, you know, the questions of sort of security versus privacy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just such a great concept for dealing with that because, you know, when you think about clones, biometric surveillance is immediately going to discover this population of people who have remained hidden, right? So this is this whole new threat for them. And that means it's very difficult for them to cross borders, for example. And so, you know, there were all these these different things that we could do with this setup um, and these these new questions that made it really interesting and fun to write. It's really interesting when you say that because you made me immediately think of this old film called The Jackal. Mm-hmm. Some people have not seen it. It's a film with Bruce Willis and uh, Richard Gere. Richard Gere, who who plays an, I guess he's supposed to be Irish, but you know we'll just leave that up to the the critics. Uh, but the a lot of the the story is about this guy who's an assassin, like crossing borders and all of these things, which he can manage to do by wearing disguises that really don't disguise him all of that well, <laughs> uh, because they they don't have any of these sort of technologies. Right. Like they, they're not checking fingerprints, right? Uh, they're, they don't really have these advanced databases for passports and photos and uh, face recognition, all of this stuff. Like the surveillance state is still like in its infancy. And I just think that we living in a time now, speaking of, of the story here, where that kind of story only kind of exists if we're like setting things deliberately in the past. It's almost impossible to imagine them today in a way. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, and that's one of the that's one of the really interesting things of writing, either in science fiction or historically, is is trying to get yourself into and out of these constraints that we've set up again. I mean, if you think about, if you look at horror movies from even like twenty years ago or thrillers, the absence of cell phones is right. like everything. <laughs> everything, right? And so, you know, figuring out the ways to write those sort of situations in a world where everyone has their phone all the time is, you know, and then you have to go, there's like the the really improbable sort of, oh, it's a dead zone, right? Um, or, you know, oh, they, the person managed to find a way to block it or whatever. So, you know, I think that it actually can be, you know, it can be a really fun thing to kind of look at look at these constraints and look at them into the future. I mean, that's, you know, for me too, it was one of the really fun things of writing my novels, which are set in a world where surveillance is incredibly pervasive. And not only is it pervasive, but it's not just like the government or a single corporation that sees it. Anyone can see it. So there's this, this sense of like, you know, it's just everything you do publicly is available to everyone. And, and, you know, finding the ways to still have secrecy and codes and, you know, people doing things in clandestine ways was, was really interesting and fun. Um, and so, you know, with Orphan Black, it's a little bit switched around because on the one hand, you know, I think, you know, like I said, as, as clones, they're more susceptible to being caught in certain ways um, through some of these things, because so many of these technologies are based on either DNA or faces or fingerprints, which comes up in the in the original show itself. And that makes it an, you know, an interesting metaphor for vulnerable te- uh, populations and for people who show up as more visible because 
the authorities are looking for them to be doing bad things, for example. And so, you know, that that makes it a really a really interesting concept to work with. That okay, so I, I gotta save that for later for when I'm reading <laughs> and think about that exact thing because that's really interesting. So thank you. Thank you. You've given me something to think about while I read. Well, that's that's what we're here for. <laughs> exactly. We are here to give you things to think about while you read or give you things to read while you think. Either way. Yeah, you know, you could do both at the same time. It, we got enough brain space for it. Uh, well, so I guess this this leads us to the moment, which is for you to let folks know where they can they find Orphan Black, the next chapter and and you yourself and your work. So you can you can find Orphan Black the next chapter on the Serial Box webpage. You can get the Serial Box app as well, which is great because it lets you switch seamlessly between audio and text. You can be listening while you're driving and then switch to reading. Although with Tatiana Maslany reading it, I don't know why you would ever switch away from audio. <laughs> but, you know, if you need to, if that's if you don't do well with audio, the text option is there. And we're up to episode five now. There's a brief hiatus that's one more week, and then we'll continue until episode 10 with the episodes coming out one a week. So you can binge. You can binge a little bit cautiously right now <laughs> and then get started on the second half. Um, and you can find my work. You can find my, the other serials that I mentioned also on the Serial Box page or app. Uh, you can find my novels, Infomocracy, Null States, and State Tectonics, which are a trilogy um, anywhere that fine books are sold. And my newest collection, which is called And Other Disasters, uh, and is short stories and poetry and just got two starved reviews, uh, will come out on November 16th. And you can get that from the publishers, Mason Jar Press, or again, anywhere fine books are sold. And do you have a, like a web, you have a website? I, I do have a website, which <laughs> is malkaolder.wordpress, cause I didn't shell out for the, name without WordPress in it. And you can also find me on Twitter, usually being very loud about stuff. Uh, and I have a Facebook author page as well. So I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, <laughs> and if you go, if you go to my webpage, there's also a pop-up, which will let you sign up for my newsletter. So yeah, I'm easy to find. It is a, not a common name. So if you Google my name, you will find me. Awesome. And I will, uh, in the show notes for everybody, put information up, everything for, for Malka here and also for all of the other contributors so that you can find their work as well and links up uh, again for uh, Orphan Black the next chapter, just in case you are just waiting for show notes and you just want to click links instead of typing things, which, you know, whatever makes you happy. So, so thank you so much, Malka, for joining us and telling us about Orphan Black the next chapter. Thank you. It was great to, to chat about it. Absolutely. And thanks, listeners, for joining us on Signal Boost. Go check out Orphan Black next chapter on Serial Box ASAP. And uh, goodbye for now. Welcome to the Skipping and Fandy Show. I'm Paul, and today on Signal Boost, we have RJ Barker here to talk about the bone chip. Say hello, RJ. Oh, hello, everybody. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm all the way from the UK. All the way across the pond or the ocean. I'm in my bedroom and it's freezing cold in here. It's the, the, cause my wife has kicked me out the front room because she's working. So. Oh, well, you are working in a sense because we're here to talk about the bone ships. So why don't you give us the elevator pitch for your fourth novel? As I, as I recall, as I count them. Yeah, it's my fourth novel. Um, and the, the, the one my, that I like that my agent told me never to use it because he sounds silly, but I love it is, um, Hornblower versus Godzilla. And I don't, I don't know whether you have Hornblower in the U.S. Uh, yeah, oh, well, we we don't we well know about Horatio Hornblower and Master and Commander and all that stuff. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, that, that is how I do it. Then Hornblower versus Godzilla is my, my that's how I always thought of it when when I was writing it. Um, and that, that's kind of what it came about. And there's there's all sorts of stuff about people being built back up and the, and the rhythm of the sea and and things like that in it. If I wanted to get really pretentious, but I'll try not to. I'll just try to talk nonsense. <laughs> now that's really interesting, Hornblower versus Godzilla, because I didn't, I didn't think of the dragon as a kaiju. So why, so where did that idea come from? I like dragons, but I, I never actually thought of it as a dragon. I thought of it more, more as like a, a metaphor for nature, uh, and and that's what I think the the kaiju are. They're, they're just vast and unknowable, and I wanted this creature that maybe doesn't even know they're there. And it's just massive. Uh, and that was really, really in my head. Though there are a lot of very 
drag any things about it as well because my, my editor was quite keen on it being a dragon so, so we kind of we met somewhere in the middle so it's quite easy but it doesn't it doesn't breathe fire and it, it doesn't fly it, it's a sea monster um really but but dragon works for it and it's very dragony on the front of the book as well that's, that's he's it is it is i'm looking at the cover right now listeners it is a very lovely cover it's got that sort of medieval look to it like yeah this, this this could be on the edge of a map here there be dragons and here's your dragon ready to bite the word dot and bone on the cover yeah i i, I love that i love that covering it's a, a beautiful cover um it doesn't have an awful lot to do with the actual contents of the book i think but but fantasy covers often don't they're, they're kind of they're not they're not there for that they're there for you to go oh, i'll pick this up and see because it's more kind of it's somewhere between the age of sail and Vikings are these sort of societies in it. They're kind of a mixture of the of the two. They're quite unpleasant, actually. The people in it. I, I wouldn't want to live there. They are. I mean, we they're they're a rather brutal society. I mean, our main char- our main character starts off as the titular captain of a doomed ship and loses that. And no spoilers, listeners. He loses that position in the first few pages. Yeah. <laughs> And he's a terrible captain as well. He's, he's he, not even he wants to be captain, really. Um, but yeah, and and I, I liked that. And I, it, it's all about the book. This book is about his reinvention. And as he reinvents himself as a person from being nothing, um, it also allows him to look at this society again and kind of go from a position of accepting everything to thinking, well, that. Um, actually maybe we shouldn't be murdering children for our ships maybe that's wrong um and i like that i like writing about people who grow it, it's one of my interests it's what i did with the assassin books before this and, and you had Gurton very much changing over three books and then joram will, will grow in a, a very different way to Gurton, but that that's what it, these three books are about and mayus the um the, the female captain who takes his position she is the the architect of that change I, I was going to I was going to mispronounce it Mies, but Mayas Lucky Lucky, lucky Mayas herself, who becomes the shipwife or, or captain of the ship, herself has a arc of her own, especially in relation to her mother. Yeah, there's a it's it's a matriarchal society, and I, I wanted to to set that up, and then there's always, there's always a temptation to try and and, and kind of because of the way we think. To say, oh, that's going to be softer or nicer or better in some way. And I, I kind of, I don't particularly believe your sex changes people's humanity and, and greed and power are things that tend to make us into bad monkeys. And um, and that's that's another sort of theme that comes back in everything I do. And and that sort of familial line as as well. That kind of this society is just wrong. And but she's. She's kind of stepped outside of it, which I, I like. She has this relationship with her mother, and she's quite hard when you meet her. And she so, she softens as she goes along, where, where Joran does the opposite. He becomes harder, and, and they kind of meet in the middle and start to understand each other. They they do. They, they, it's it's a nice convergence of character growth between between the two characters. I mean, I mean, we we basically live in his head, but we get to see what he thinks of of lucky and the re- and the rest of the crew as it were including some remnants from her former former ship as they as she tries to basically integrate old and new and some unwanted uh, extras that she has to take on to yeah they're not they're not all all nice this this is like the dregs of their society but but it, it's about people getting a second chance which which i i like as well it's, it's, these people get a chance to I'm a firm believer in people that most of the time, if you give people a chance to be better, they will take it. Uh, and that the book's partly about that. And, and it's kind of a it, it's it takes its time to get going because I, I wanted it to feel kind of like this big ponderous ship and it's broken. So it's it's almost stopped at the beginning and then it slowly speeds up as, as everything starts to be fixed. Not only the ship itself, which is quite badly damaged, but the people aboard it. And then when we get to the point where the the chase of this dragon starts, everything's just starting to come together. Uh, and the, the pace of the book just jumps forward. And from that moment, it's kind of nonstop. Yeah, it is a nice gear shift. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was it was really deliberate and kind of a kind of a thing that, that you're aware that as a writer, that not everyone is going to 
like that, <laughs> but but it felt right for the book, and, and I was I was I kind of I'd, I'd stick by it. I kind of if somebody goes, mm, it's, it's a bit slow. I go, no, no, that's how it should be. It's right. Well, you, it, it is kind of like a turning ship, a turning uh, oil tanker. It takes its time to actually turn to go to the new direction. But you do start off with with a combat right at the beginning. It's not, it's not as slow introspection as someone staring at the window for ten chapters. Oh no! And and and, and we do, and we do see the crew not um, very early on cock it up, as it were. So it so it's almost yeah, it's almost like yeah, they're trying to build themselves into something better as they as they're going along, and it's a it's a gradual slow process. And this is the first of a of a trilogy or a duology. First of a trilogy. First of a trilogy. Oh, excellent. Yeah, three three books, and I'm I'm just writing. I'm about eighty thousand words into the third one now, so I I know where it's all going. I've got quite. I tend to start with a really clear idea of where a thing is going to end, um, so that I can build stuff into that first book. That like if if you the assassin books, if you read Age of Assassins again after the third one, it there's loads of stuff in there. You're tempting me to do a reread. Yeah, but. <laughs> Yeah, you, you you do like to lay things down that you do pay off a couple books down the line. I do appreciate that sort of slow burn of finally finally paying off stuff that come, came across earlier. It's like too often times I read fantasy novels and stuff goes nowhere, but the Age of Assassin books you do have nice through lines that way, and I look forward to you see what you're doing with that with the bone chips in the same way. Yeah, and, and there's a there's a an element of of trusting the reader as well because it's not i'm not a, a debut author anymore so i kind of i hope a reader will pick it up and, and trust me now to sort of sit, stick with it because it, it's a very different world um it it's like the assassin books were, were quite simple because it's a medieval england fantasy world and everyone knows that it can, that's in your head it's in all of us it's mm-hmm. it's what we think but the bone ships is is its own thing and it has its own language and its own terminology and it's quite complicated and, and you need to learn all that before the, the book can properly sort of start. But the, the aim for me was, was that by the time the action, you're, you're kind of in there. You're part of this world. You're not, you're not thinking in, in 21st century Western ways anymore. You're thinking like these people and the way they speak and, and talk. Um, yeah. <laughs> Stupidly ambitious, but why not? I appreciate a lot of the world building. I mean, you have you have words for things. I mean, you I mean, you could have just called them captain and gone to translate, but no, you 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 vent the term shipwife and you s- stick with that. There's plenty of. I appreciate the etymology of names that you go through. I want you to tell me about that a little because I mean, we get places like Kishan Blood Bay as and these <laughs> these, these lovely abulations of words as. As names, I want to, if you want to talk about that a little, a little bit. It, it, it comes from, I, mean, I, I love history. I, I'm fascinated with it. And especially English, if, if you have an interest in sort of ships, which I, I do in a kind of, I'm not going to get on one because I'd be terribly seasick, but I like them. I think they're beautiful. I'm interested in them. And so much of our language is, is from that, that, that you don't realize. And it kind of like, you just take like towns like Portsmouth, which, which is, it's the, the mouth of the paw. It's where you go with your ship. Um, and I wanted that in this world. Like, Burnshume is the capital of the Hundred Islands. And that's where the Burn, who are the, the aristocrat class, that's where they live. It's, it's their home. And, and then Kijan Blood Bay, the, the Kijans are Arakesians, or these massive dragons. And they used to butcher them and then use their bones to build the ships. So a lot of their culture should revolve around that and places where things happened with them. So you get these these names. That that makes sense. That makes plenty of sense. I mean, the the the, the world brings brings the names to uh to the surface. It's meant to reflect its own logic. You know, it's meant to be self-referential to it to itself rather than to to our world. And it's a world without trees as well, which is um that was the how I started it, which was how would you write a book about ships in a world that doesn't have trees? And they, they kind of have these massive jungles that grow up in one season, and then die back. Um, so you can't build these ships. And, and that's in their thinking as well. That there's, there's sudden plenty and then nothing. Uh, and they're kind of a really desperate society. But there's room for gentleness. And that's, that's kind of what, what I want him to be learning in these books. 
there is a better way because because the two nations have had this endless conflict and they've been simply just throwing stuff at each other and there are no more Arakesians to until they spot the one they're going after to build more ships they're basically kind of going in a cycle of self-destruction with each other and I do appreciate at least from the Swift Park it seems to be a, a tale of trying to do better and trying to break that endless cycle of just violence destroying stuff and just building poorer and poorer yeah that that, that is a big big thing I mean I'm fascinated by by war and the, the history of war but I, I find violence reprehensible at the same time and so that Often my, my heroes, if you want to use that word or not, like in the assassin books, there's, there's never a, a big bad guy in my books, really. The, the society is the bad guy and they're trying to break out of it and maybe find a better way. And, and that's, that's what they're doing in this. And there's, there's, all, there's also the, the, the Galeem who are, um, wind wizards. I think is the best way of, of explaining them. They can, cause it just made sense that in a society that, relies on massive ships you'd need someone that could control the wind and um they're a an avian race that are, they're, they're basically slaves but they they never call them that and joran has never thought of that about uh, until he comes into contact with one and that's a big sort of lever on his personality and his learning to i'm being much more serious than i usually am paul that i usually <laughs> just talk absolute nonsense nobody ever asks me about writing um but, but yeah that that was um Another thing, so you're kind of seeing this horrid society from the outside, and, and hopefully you're thinking, please just be better people, and then you get to see them learning to be better people, which I think is a lovely thing, and, and I really enjoy that in, in the book. It is a painful, slow process, though, because all of society is pointed against them. I don't want to give away the latter half of the book, but yeah, the, their attempts to do so are not do not go unremarked by forces that would keep things the way they are. No, no, they're, they're, they're not making themselves popular. And, and there, there are big action sequences in this book that hopefully are exciting and at the same time leave you thinking, I never ever want to be in a battle. Cause that's kind of the, what's going on in my head. That's why I want you to leave, leave thinking. It's kind of, there, there's a, I'm trying not to give too much away. I, I know you're so excited and you're also writing book three right now. So it's kind of like, the, the the weird timing of how these things work. This is a book and a half behind for you, or it's just I just finished this thing a couple of weeks ago, so it's very very disjointed that way. And and we want readers, we want listeners to actually buy the book and read it. Yes, yes, I'm not going to give too much away about the. But I think by the end of the book, you you'll be left curious, probably about the Galem, who are the the these wizards, and and things that Joran finds out. Uh, and oh, I can't say any more than that, can I? It's a massive spoiler, is it? Yeah, it would be a, be a massive spoiler to go that much further. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the, the book leaves you with a lot of curiosity. It's a, an entire story by itself. It works on its own. But I think it will leave you with a, a, a curiosity about how and why things happen. Indeed. So there's one more thing about the world building I want to talk about, which is not very spoilery. You, you mentioned that there weren't a lot of trees. I noticed there was a lot more avians in this world there's a lot more birds so i I kept thinking they're like large flightless birds so what prompted you to create a there's not that really reference to mammals or reptiles it's like this is a birds and humans world do i have to have that feeling right and dragons of course birds birds humans and fish uh, uh, exist in this world and it was it's really deliberate and, and i'm glad glad you noticed that um there there are really good reasons for it that i'm not going to tell you spoilers um, <laughs> but uh, partly it was the the thinking of that this is a these are all islands it's it's an archipelago well there's 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 a lot less land than there is sea and and mammals need that migratory path to kind of thing and when when i said that was one of the things that it, this is all birds that that's how creatures have sort of moved because they they can fly or swim to get to another place and when i'd handed in the, the, that book and i'd finished the proofread my little boy who's nine i was talking to him about this and he was he went so this is just birds daddy and i went yes yeah, just birds no mammals and he looked at me and went apart from the people <laughs> and i was like oh, oh you, why didn't you tell me that a year ago you little monkey um so yeah there are there are people but there, there there's there is more depth and reason to the way this world is than 
then you will find in that book. Though there is stuff hidden in that book that when you've read other ones, you'll, you'll realise what's going on. And I think I read one review where someone, I think, has got a clue about what might be happening, which was quite impressive to me. I thought, wow, you, you read quite deep there. Oh, excellent. So the, the Bone Chips has come, has come out. And so when the, is the next book due out? The next book's due September next year. And then the last one, September the year after. The sort of the once a year for these ones. I did the Assassin ones every six months, but that was quite hard. Um, I can <laughs> imagine, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I didn't get to stop. Um, so I've taken a lot, lot more time with these and they're much more. It's really weird that the Assassin books are very plot heavy because they're basically murder mysteries yep. set in a fantasy world. So, mm-hmm. so there's, there's a lot of plot in them. And I found that I find that a lot easier to write with a lot of stuff going on where these books are, are, are more like a, an adventure. There's not actually a, a huge amount of plot in it. it it's quite linear and, and people, it's about some people who go to a place. That's probably the entire story with, with things happening that, that are quite spoilery if I mention them. And it's really weird because I found that much harder to write. Like the Assassin books I wrote, the first one in six weeks and then the next one in three months and the last one in four months. But these, the second one took me 10 months to write of the Bone Ships. And I think this last one's probably going to take about seven before I've, I've got a version I'm happy with. And, and it's it's just, I think part of it is I'm, I'm not a natural third person writer. I want to write in first person. So I'm kind mm-hmm. of pushing myself to, to do something different. Because I don't, I get bored really quickly. So hopefully, and then I'm already planning what I want to do next, and I think that'll be something very different again. And and I think I'll I'll probably do something that's a lot easier to read, maybe. Because I quite fancy having a go at something that that's a lot easier to just bang straight into. Because that that's not as deeply involved as the bone ships is. The bone ships want you to like sink fully into it, and I quite quite like to write. Oh, oh yes, this is definitely a book that wants you to engage fully with its world and its ideas, and yeah. not, not not just burn through in 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 a, in a couple of days and be done. This is this you're sinking you're sinking in, into the uh, into the bilge of the ship, like it or not. <laughs> it's it's because I I love books like that, like Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. I I love that, which is quite a it's quite a slow burn book, but it, it is absolutely all encompassing and. Patrick O'Brien, who, who writes the, probably the best naval fiction, the first time I read one of his books, I just did not understand the first four chapters. I, I could have been reading in a different language. And, and then as you go through and, and you start to, the jigsaw comes together of this world, it, I just found it immensely rewarding that you get to a point and suddenly they're talking about these things which you didn't know anything about when you started the book and you're thinking, oh yeah, that, that's near the front of the ship on the left side. Uh, and you kind of by the time you get to the action sequences you you, you understand their language and and i love that it just it makes me really happy to think that someone maybe something i've written could give someone else that experience that that'd be a real joyous thing to to happen for people for me probably more joyous for me well it, it certainly happened for me I, I mean when i when i picked up this book i was, I was like well how is this gonna be different than age of assassins and it's different and 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 i do think it's a leveling up for you into into new territory, new ways of uh, writing, a third, third, third person epic fantasy, a travel cross rather than mostly staying in relatively concentrated locations as of the age of assassins. And I, I think this is really works, and I'm really looking forward to book two. Hence, me asking when is book two? Thank you. I'll see if I can get you an early copy. I'll have, I'll have a word with with all the viewers. I would appreciate that, and I do. I do love this front map. It's like this is very sixteenth century sort of. Uh, very stylized map in in the front of the book. It's 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 done by a gentleman called a chap called Tom Parker, who's a really old oh, friend yes. of mine. Oh yes, yeah. and he did the um. There's like chap pictures above the chapter headers. Um, he did those as well, and I think there's four different ones in this book, and then there's three more that will go into the next one, and then another three that go into the last one. So by the time you get to the last book, I think there's nine or ten different little pictures and they're incredibly detailed his pictures every time i look at them and i've been looking at them for a long time now i kind of think oh oh yeah i didn't notice that before yeah this is a book that definitely is better in physical i think than in digital but you were saying mm. and he's going to be doing them um, hopefully he's sending me a he did 
when I put in the, the stuff to orbit and said, this is what I want to do next, he did some drawings. Um, and he's going to send me one of those for me to give away to people. So when, when it gets to the magical 50 reviews on Amazon, I'll, I'll do a competition or something for somebody to win. It's a picture of a ship and it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm, I, I want it to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of hoping it just never gets to 50, 50 reviews and then I can just have it. Um, I should probably shouldn't say that. My editor will shout at me, but, um, it's, it's really beautiful. Paul, it's fantastic. I think it's on my Twitter. If you, if you go back, I'll put it on my Twitter again, just in case anyone's time to look. Yes, please do. Okay. So we've, we reached the end of our time, sadly, in tragedy. So please let our listeners know where we can find you and your work, the age of assassins trilogy and now the bone ships. Um, you you can find them in any good bookshop. Um, I imagine probably some bad ones as well, run by really grumpy people. Um, <laughs> um all all bookshops hopefully will have them. Um, you can find them on on the, the big Amazon creature. Um, and you, you can find me on rjbarker.com. That's my website, and and there's contact forms and stuff. And I, I am on Twitter as if you search RJ Barker, you find me, but with my stupid DED dead book dreaming um, name. And I'm on Twitter constantly, basically. You can just, I'll just start. you can stop me writing basically by talking to me on Twitter. If you hate my books, that's how to stop it being anymore. Just, just talk to me on Twitter. <laughs> I have no room to talk. <laughs> it's so much fun. If you avoid all the awful people. Indeed. So thank you so much, RJ, for joining us and telling us about the bone ships and the rest of your work. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope I've not witted too much. I do witter a lot. It's, it's it's my superpower talking nonsense. I'm really good at that. No, I thought I thought it was a good conversation. And thank you again. Thank you for lovely meeting you. And with that, listeners, stay frosty. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyinfanty. You can also find us on our website, skiffyinfanty.com, and on Twitter at skiffyinfanty. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at skiffyinfanty at gmail.com. The music for this episode comes from Sphere by Creo. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.